Good afternoon and welcome back to Dark Histories from the Secret University. I'm going to be talking today about one of my favourite books, The Smoke of the Soul, and one of my favourite chapters in it about Christopher Marlowe and the extraordinary drama Dr Faustus. If I can do one useful thing on this particular episode, it must surely be to beg you, to implore you, to urge you never to become an academic. Let me give you reasons why you spend many, many years conceiving uh, and researching a book project. It begins with your PhD back in 1997, which concludes in 2001. Uh, it was a happy Viva Day, incidentally. It happened to be uh, Midsummer's Day, and we had a splendid party uh, back at the house which I shared with various friends. And the landlord and landlady having decided that the shed was going to be demolished and replaced, we set fire to it, made a pagan bonfire. I opted out about one in the morning. It'd been quite a long day with a PhD viva uh, before lunchtime and uh, went off to my girlfriend's house, came back about 10 and was sitting out on the patio vaguely having some coffee when in staggered Hugh uh, and various of his comrades in partying arms where have you been you we've been to stonehenge so that was the early stages of the smoke of the soul uh, which i researched and burrowed further and further into it got stranger and bigger and deeper uh, as time went on in my first job lecturing at cardiff and then again at durham finally got published in 2013 and was well received uh, in the times literary supplement where it was described as excellent exhaustive and pioneering but it was so excellent that palgrave decided to keep it only in hardback at the cool cost of about a hundred pounds which was going to put off some of the most devoted intellectuals who didn't have access to a university library so not long ago i rewrote reissued the book uh, with the rights returned to myself and also redesigned it and wondered what needed to be added to, expanded, explained. And the result was the current edition, which I'm very pleased with indeed. This is chapter three, Selling Your Soul, Christopher Marlowe and the Invention of Theatre. And we begin with some context on the demonic from Italy a few decades before Marlowe's birth. In 1532, the Italian sculptor and goldsmith Benvenuto Cellini asked a priest to help him raise spirits. Cellini was hoping that they might inform him as to the whereabouts of one Angelica, a young woman whose mother had sensibly whisked her off to Naples, well beyond the lovesick artist's clutches. In this, as in much else, Cellini was not about to cut corners. The necromancy took place one night, not in any darkened private room, but in the midst of the Roman Colosseum. On the first occasion, the results were inconclusive. Devils certainly appeared, but were reticent as to Angelica's hiding place. On the second try, the consequences were spectacular, if not entirely desirable. Having piously commanded demons in the name of God using Hebrew, Latin and Greek, the priest suddenly found that the Colosseum was filled with a hundred times more demons than there had been on the previous occasion. Cellini's friend Agnolo Gaddi, the young virginal boy brought to assist them, and even the priest himself were all more than a little perturbed, I quote. The boy had stuck his head between his knees and was crying, I will die like this, we're all going to die. 
At this, I said to him, these creatures are only our slaves. All you can see is only smoke and shadow. So come on, look up. He lifted his head and then he cried out again. The whole Colosseum is on fire and the flames are rushing towards us. Then he clapped his hands over his eyes and started crying. That he was dead and didn't want to see any more. The necromancer implored my help, begging me to stand firm and telling me to have some asphatida fumes made. I stared at Agnolo Gaddi, whose eyes were popping out of his head, and who was half dead with terror. Agnolo, I cried, there's no room for fear in a situation like this. You must lend a hand. Throw some of the asphatida on at once. The instant he went to make a move, Agnolo blew off and shat himself so hard that it was more effective than the asphatida. The tremendous stench and noise made the boy lift his head a little, and when he heard me laughing, he plucked up courage and said that the dead demons were running away like mad. We stayed where we were till matins were on. Then the boy spoke up again and said that there were only a few devils left. Thus Cellini, on a memorable instant of devil raising, which may have put him off the whole business uh, of trying to locate the beautiful Angelica from his autobiography. Well, that was Italy, and perhaps they always do things a bit bigger and a bit louder there. But matters were still pretty terrifying over in Britain as Marlowe's Faustus came onto the stage. Let's bear in mind here that in Scotland in the 1590s, Britain was already witnessing the start of the witch hunts, which were to blight the 17th century. And the stage history of Marlowe's play alone makes it very clear that the darker side of the spirit world was a highly potent force in the imagination of Tudor and Stuart audiences. Perhaps most famously, there was a celebrated tale of the performance in Exeter, during which actors became convinced that an extra devil was present among them on the stage. With the audience also swiftly persuaded of this, a wild rush for the exits of the host inn ensued, and the touring company spent the night in fervent prayer before hastily leaving the city the next day. Whatever the factual status of that account, both its existence as rumour and its long-running popularity seemed to capture perfectly the unstable aura of wonder and terror which reverberated out from Marlowe's legendary drama. As David Bevington and Eric Rasmussen note, Thomas Middleton may well have been referring to Marlowe's Faustus when he cited another appearance for unscripted devils during a performance at London's theatre around the early 1590s. In this case, the play's legend gains an extra layer of varnish, with the audience being further alarmed by the cracking of the stage. Perhaps most startling, yet also most reliable, given its detailed emphasis, is the tale related by the Puritan William Prynne in the 1630s. Here, we're told not just of intruding devils, but of the vis visible apparition of THE Devil, capital D, on the stage at the Bell Savage Playhouse in Queen Elizabeth's days, to the great amazement both of the actors and spectators while they were there playing the history of Faustus. The truth of this, Prynne insists, I have heard from many now alive who well remember it, there being some distracted with that fearful sight. Even mere reading of the play could traumatise some, in the 1640s, the printer's apprentice, Francis Kirkman, though generally pleased by the tale of Faustus, was, quote, much troubled when the devil came to fetch in. And the consideration of that horrible end did so terrify me that I often dreamed of it. He was doubtless not alone. We turn now to a piece of context which is hardly less important than the religious atmosphere of the period, and that is the invention of theatre. At a glance, then, Marlowe's Faustus looks like the exorcist of his day, sweeping a whirlwind of controversy, terror and hysteria through Shakespearean London, as that notorious film would do in Britain and America in the 1970s. But 
In reality, Marlowe's play was far stranger and wilder than that. Why? Because Christopher Marlowe invented English theatre. In doing so, he was also reinventing reality. This could happen only once. No modern film director, whatever their budget or their brilliance, could begin to compete with this. Although, as we'll see, the immoral genius of Quentin Tarantino has much in common with Marlowe's drama. To fully grasp the effect of Faustus's drama, we need then to grasp what drama was, how it scorched the minds and souls of the Elizabethans like nothing before or since. Let us start by trying to conceive something stranger than any of the beliefs or habits so far seen in this book. Imagine a world without Shakespeare. I mean it. Try for a moment to obliterate all those scenes, all those phrases, all those lines, including, of course, all the worlds of stage, which was first spoken as the most outrageously daring in-joke by actors who had the smell of fresh paint and fresh timber in their nostrils. Against considerable odds, William Shakespeare is the biggest selling fiction author of all time. William Shakespeare had no agent, no internet, no Twitter account, no trains or papers or telegraphs to blaze his fame across the world. In a world of plague, dirts, rats and danger in rooms either too hot or too cold for comfort, William Shakespeare sat down with quill, ink and paper and wrote himself into eternity. Could he have done it without Marlowe, that brave new pioneer of modern realistic drama? Shakespeare's fame is also a triumph of genius over personality. That is, we know almost nothing about him. Three things we can say with confidence. He loved language, he loved drama, and he hated Puritans. In the late 1580s or 1590s, those three things were bound up in a surprisingly explosive mixture. For many Christians, Elizabethan theatre attacked the very roots of truth and reality. To put it bluntly, theatre told lies. Not only that, but it did so in a rage of gorgeous spectacle, of luxury and of cross-dressing, with young boys acting the roles of girls or women. For those austere new people of the book, the Protestants and the Puritans, all this decadent colour and illusion was positively Catholic. So it was that in 1578, the Puritan preacher, John Stockwood, stood at Paul's cross and denounced to his listeners those new houses of purpose built and that without the liberties, as who would say, there let them say what they will say, we will play houses of purpose built. A crucial problem in this wild new moral panic that these were permanent structures with only the theatre and the curtain in existence at this stage, Stockwood had hit on an unnerving new feature of the psychogeography of Elizabethan London. These were new, purpose-built spaces devoted solely to the vice of drama, and they were located outside the city walls in the Liberties, those spaces of barely tolerated licence and disorder, which also housed brothels and bull and bear baiting arenas, and worse was to come. The Rose thrust up its timbers in 1587, the Swan around 1595, and the Globe in 1599. Stockwood was speaking outside Old St Paul's Cathedral, in a space where Dunn and others would later preach, and where, at times, people probably heard the drums, trumpets, and live cannon used in plays such as Henry IV. 
And as Stephen Mullaney has emphasised, the liberties were more than just a space of vice and dubious pleasure. Crucially, they were a space between, between city and country, between reality and outright fantasy, a kind of thrilling holiday space where, as in the silver dark of early cinema, the rigid, cold laws of everyday life could melt and warp into so many possible worlds of wonder, danger and outright dazzling magic. At the same time, we must remind ourselves that the godlike, the iconic, the impossibly canonical figure of Shakespeare started there in dirt and disorder, on the margins, dreaming his way into a future that others denounced or simply could not begin to see. And so we come to Dr. Faustus, the exorcist of the late Elizabethan period. If Marlowe really did write Faustus immediately after Tamburlaine, hoping, hoping thereby to outdo his initial whirlwind successes, then even in the remainder of his short life, he should hardly have been disappointed. His new play had a phenomenally long stage history and was frequently reprinted after 1604. Clearly, the once uncanny yet real presence of demonic powers played a large part in this success. Yet, at the same time, part of this very power derived from the otherness of the spirit world. It was fascinating just because it was strange, just because it did not routinely intrude upon the human world. Accordingly, as with so many modern horror films, part of the genius of Faustus must have been its ability to convincingly mediate the space between mundane everyday reality and that darkly glimmering zone inhabited by Mephistopheles and his satanic agents. It was here that the world of learned magic intervened. As with his careful attention to the arts of early modern warfare in Tamburlaine, Marlowe appears in this area to have drawn on actual, sometimes relatively recent works, using the supposedly misguided New Testament sorcerer Simon Magus and the notorious German magician Henricus Cornelius Agrippa. Agrippa was believed to have raised demonic spirits and to have sent out a satanic black dog into the countryside on his death in 1535. While sources such as those could have appealed especially to educated viewers, the illiterate groundlings may well have been the more impressed at Faustus commanding Latin incantations just because this was a linguistic reach so far beyond their, their ken. Alongside this mythically potent zone of transition, the play offered another more democratic site of interchange between the, super, between the human and the superhuman. This was the soul. In an age when physicians and surgeons were running their knives ever closer to this most sacred inner chamber, it was surely no accident that Marlowe's Faustus, like the real-life Agrippa, should also flirt with medicine. Everyone has probably heard of the Faustian bargain, whereby you sell your soul. Usually nowadays this is selling your soul in a rather more metaphorical fashion so that perhaps you study philosophy and end up working in advertising. But selling your soul in Marlowe's time could for many be a very real and surprisingly medical business. Here is the Faustian bargain. Once upon a time, it was really possible to sell your soul. Asked by Mephistopheles to stab his arm and bind thy soul in formal contract, Faustus does so, saying, Lo, Mephistopheles, for love of thee, I cut mine arm 
and with my proper blood assure my soul to be great Lucifer's, chief lord and regent of perpetual night. View here the blood that trickles from mine arm, and let it be propitious for my wish. Mephistopheles, but Faustus, thou must write it in manner of a deed of gift. Aye, so I will, he writes. But, Mephistopheles, my blood congeals, and I can write no more. With Faustus wondering as to the sudden coagulation, Mephistopheles exits and returns with a chafer of coals, and the blood is apparently set over this to be warmed and liquefied. The only original stage direction we have here is enter Mephistopheles with a chafer of coals. What might have actually been happening on stage at this moment in London theatres and provincial inn-yards of the Elizabethan and Stuart eras? It seems unlikely that actors were really cutting their arms for each performance. Were they instead using animal blood to more or less realistic effect? The evidence of the text implies that Faustus at least mimics the action of cutting his arm and the line view here strongly suggests that audiences would be disappointed with, if not derisive of, a scene which did not show something trickling down Faustus' arm. Wider context backs this up. First, spectators may well have been expecting more vivid spectacle as the play became better known and potentially too familiar. The most valuable point of comparison with the bargain scene in Dr. Faustus is offered by a play which blatantly capitalised on the success of Marlowe's devilish drama. On 2nd of February 1607, a drama called The Devil's Charter played before the King at the Globe Theatre. Penned by the poet Barnaby Barnes, the play had Pope Alexander VI signing away his soul in an opening scene filled with fire, smoke and blood. A devil dressed in black robes like a pro-notary with a cornered cap on his head and a box of lancets and his girdle brought to Alexander a little piece of fine parchment by way of contract. And having read this out, the pro-notary stripped up Alexander's sleeve and let, let his arm blood in a saucer. Alexander then takes a pen from pro-notary and subscribes to the parchment. Given that another devil then seems to sup up, that is, drink the remaining blood, there seems little doubt that some kind of fluid was on show here. We'll, of course, return to this extraordinary moment of demonic vampirism as we dive deeper into the whirlpool of Dr. Faustus. So we have blood of some kind, probably animal blood, which was readily available at the time and was certainly used in extremely violent uh, disemboweling scenes around the 1580s. Uh, and we have fire. What is going on here? The blood tries to coagulate, and this problem is overridden by Mephistopheles, who applies simple scientific principles. Fire heats the blood, and it liquefies it again. And Marlowe is, uh, sorry, Faustus is able to complete the contract and sign away his soul. So we seem to have science here defying the will of the Almighty. And we seem also to have uh, a glance at the physiology, the medical status of the soul in the period, which would have been probably recognisable by just about anybody in the audience, high or low, that is, your soul is probably located in your blood, most of all, so that when Faustus' blood coagulates, it is his soul 
trying to stop him signing away his soul. This is not the only terrifying irony in the play. We'll come to many more towards the end of this extraordinary drama, The Exorcist of the Late Elizabethan Period. This is from The Smoke of the Soul, Science, Religion and the Invention of the South. Many thanks for listening.